Good morning. If you find our seats, if you would turn to Exodus chapter 17. Again, that's Exodus chapter 17, and we'll be starting in verse 1. If you would, read along with me again. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, says this. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sinai by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I say or what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and the name, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. There, anyway, Father, God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. And I thank you for just how amazingly connected your word is, Lord, and how it continuously preaches the same thing. And, and that thing is a person, Lord. The person is Christ. God, I thank you that not only were you testing the Israelites, but you were teaching the Israelites, that you were pointing the Israelites forward to their only hope, Lord, which is true for us today, that our only hope, Lord, is Christ and him crucified. Lord, I pray as we go through this passage, Lord, that you expose our own hearts, Lord, where we grumble and complain, where we disobey, Lord, where we quarrel, even, Lord, where we test you. God, I pray that you expose those things, but more importantly, Lord, I pray that today you point us to your son, Lord, the, the solution, the answer, the grace that is offered through him, Lord, and his death on the cross, Lord where justice was poured out on him and mercy was poured out on us, Lord. I pray for anyone that doesn't know your son this morning, Lord, that they wouldn't leave this room or stop listening online without evaluating their lives and seeing that they truly are sinners and that their only hope, just like Israel, is the grace offered through your son, Jesus. So be with us this morning, Lord, as we go through this important text. In your son's name, amen. Last week, we uh, saw that God in the wilderness with the Israelites, God wasn't just testing the Israelites and exposing what was in their hearts. 
But God was also teaching them. He was teaching them about his grace, and he was really pointing the Israelites to their only hope, pointing forward to Jesus, to the coming Messiah, to the the coming seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15. We saw at two points of the sermon last week, Jesus, our Sabbath rest, and Jesus, our bread of life, the Sabbath and the manna in the wilderness, both pointing forward to the grace that would be offered in Christ. Today, I want to kind of continue where we left off last week, really looking at what God was teaching Israel and what God was pointing Israel to. And I have four points of the sermon this morning. You can really outline the passage I just read in four different parts. And the four points or parts of the sermon are the crisis, the complaint, the response, and the test. Again, the crisis, the complaint, the response, and the test. So let's just jump right into our passage this morning, Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, and it starts with the crisis. Again, look at verse 1, it says this, And all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Raphidim. But there was no water for the people of Israel, for the people to drink. Again, we see that this is the same crisis that we saw a few weeks ago. Once again, Israel is out of water, being led by God into the wilderness, yet running out of water. And I hope you're seeing a pattern, of course, it's obvious in these last few chapters, a pattern of of trial and blessing, trial and blessing. In fact, I kind of want to just walk through uh, where we've been so far in this, in this portion of Scripture as we uh, are, are continuing to see Israelite the Israel's relationship with God in the wilderness. So if you would, in chapter 15, if you would turn to chapter 15, verse 22, this is right after the Red Sea crossing, right after a blessing from God, Israel's enemy coming down, attacking Israel. They're defenseless with their backs against the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites walk through the Red Sea and God destroys their enemy by crushing them under the the sea. And this was a blessing. This was salvation from their enemies. And right after this blessing, what do we see? We see a trial. Again, Exodus 15, verse 22 says this, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah, Because it was bitter. Again, this was a trial. God led the Israelites to a place where where they didn't have water. They finally found water, and the water is bitter. And we learn in Exodus 15, verse 25, that God was testing Israel, right? Exposing what was in Israel's heart. And what did God do? Well, he turned the bitter waters of Merah to sweet, drinkable water. In fact, right after he did that, turned the water into sweet, drinkable water, he led Israel to an oasis in Elam where there was plenty of water, it says 12 springs, and plenty of shade, 70 palm trees. It was a blessing. God led Israel from this trial to a blessing. But what came right after the blessing? Another trial. Look at Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. It says this in verse 1, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, 
on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Again, we see uh, another trial. Israelites, this time, was running out of food. This trial really, again, exposed the heart of the Israelites as we've talked about the bitterness, the distrust of God, right? the grumbling, the complaining, the whining. So what did God do? Right, right after this, he blessed them. He fed them with quail, which we talked about was a delicacy and, and manna that tastes like honey. He fed them. He blessed them. In fact, Psalms 105 verse 40 says this, they asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. Well, what came right after this blessing? Another trial. Look at Exodus 17 verse 1. This is our passage this morning. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sinai by stages according to the command of the Lord. Again, the, the, that the Lord Yahweh is directing them. He's the one that's leading them. And where did he lead them? Encamped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Just think about that for a second. Chapter 15, there's no water. Chapter 16, there's no food. Chapter 17, there's no water again. It's trial after trial after trial. And in between each trial, what is there? Blessing. A provision by God. It was trial, blessing, trial, blessing, trial. Just stop. And let me ask you this question. Because as I was going through this and just thinking about this, isn't this our Christian walk sometimes? <laughs> blessing, trial, blessing, trial. In fact, as I was thinking about this, I really believe I can think of a number of times in my life where I was having a blessing and a trial at the same exact time. You know what I've learned in my own life and being a pastor for now over 10 years, and really especially in these three chapters as I've been studying the Israelites in the wilderness, man has a tendency to focus on the trial and forget the blessings. Is that not right? We have a tendency to focus on our trials. In fact, we have a tendency to be consumed by our trials and forget about all the blessings that God has poured out on us over our lives. By chapter 17, Israel really had no reason to distrust God. God has proven that he had the ability to take care of Israel, and he has proven that that he had the desire to take care of Israel as a, as a son, like a father and son. All Israel was called to do was have faith, to trust God, to obey God, even to ask God for their needs, but that's not what they did. Over and over again, they complained, they grumbled, and really just focused and was consumed on the trial they were focused on what they didn't have. And they forgot these blessings that came over and over again. They forgot God's provision right, that just happened. 
So that's the crisis that Israel found themselves in. The, the second part of this passage we see is the complaint. Again, we see a crisis and a complaint. This is a pattern that we've seen over and over again in these few chapters. Look at verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us w- water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Again, this is the fourth time that we see Israel guilty of grumbling in these few short chapters, starting in chapter 14 before they even cross the Red Sea. But three times after the Red Sea, grumbling is the major theme of this portion of Exodus. And we've learned that grumbling is a major sin. But this time... I hope you notice as I read through this passage, this grumbling seems to have escalated, right? I mean, look at verse 2. It says this, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses. That word quarrel in in Hebrew has a range of meaning of like striving, complaining, uh, opposing, but even means attacking someone, getting into a brawl, lodging a complaint with, or bringing legal charges. There's this idea of... uh, a legal legality behind this complaint. It's a very strong word. The hostility towards Moses and God, in other words, has risen to a whole nother level. In fact, look at verse four. It says this. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Moses believes that his life is in danger here. I don't know if Moses is exaggerating or not, but it seems like he believes that the Israelites are ready to stone him, to, to, to kill him because of what was happening. And if anything, this situation, again, has escalated to a, to a whole other level in this passage. Now, there's two statements in the verses that I just read, verses 2 and verse 3, that I believe really expose the, the heart of the Israelites. The first statement, again, is found in verse 2. It says this, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, this is what they they, they said, this is what's come out of their hearts. Give us water to drink. Now, the statement goes beyond grumbling or complaining. It's actually demanding. It's demanding God's provision. It's not asking for God to provide. It's not waiting for God's provision. It's not trusting in God's provision as we saw Jesus last week in the wilderness waiting for God, trusting in God's provision. Instead, Israel is demanding God's provision. Give us water to drink. Again, this trial is just exposing the ugliness that's within Israel's heart, as trials do. The second statement that, again, reveals Israel's heart is found in verse 3. Verse 3 says this, But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, this question is less of a question and more of an accusation, right? I hope you see that. God saved Israel, in other words, from Egypt across the Red Sea just to bring them to the wilderness and abandon them, right? Just to kill them by not providing water. In other words, Israel was judging God's motives. And they concluded that his motives were evil in their interactions with him. I just want you to 
Think about this, right? At this point, Israel didn't lack faith in God's power. They weren't questioning his ability to take care of them. Right? He's he has shown, right? They had firsthand experience of God's power. Ten awesome displays of power in Egypt, the Red Sea parting and then crushing their enemies, manna raining from heaven. Israel wasn't questioning God's power. They were questioning God's love. They were questioning God's goodness. There's an important lesson here that I think we need to to learn. Whenever we face trials, we're going to be tempted to question one of three things about God. We'll be tempted to question maybe God's sovereignty, God's power. There's some that would say God really wants to help you, but he lacks the power or it's outside of God's hands. There's many Christians that believe that. There are less Christians and more kind of deists. They think God's kind of spun the world together and think God's hands off. He'd like to happen, but he doesn't want to interrupt the flow of what's happening. You'll be tempted to question God's sovereignty. Or maybe you'd be tempted to question God's love, which the Israelites were questioning. They didn't question God's power. They've seen it. They've seen that he has the power to do whatever he wants. What they questioned was his love. God has the power, but he doesn't really care about the situation I find myself in. You may be tempted to question God's sovereignty. You may be tempted to question God's love, or you may be tempted to question God's wisdom. In fact, as I've thought through this a lot, I think this is what we question the most. I think most Christians believe God has the power. I think most Christians believe God is loving and cares. What they question is his wisdom. He must have just made a mistake in the situation I find myself in. When you face a trial, you're going to be tempted to question one of three things about God. His sovereignty, his love, or his wisdom. In fact, facing a trial in faith has faith in all three of those things. That God has the power to do whatever he wants. That God loves me and he cares about me. And God is wise enough to to know that this situation somehow is going to glorify him and be for my good. Israel wasn't questioning God's power. They were questioning God's love. In fact, they were accusing God of evil. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And this is a whole new level of grumbling that I believe we're seeing in this passage. Again, the first part of this passage, we see the crisis. Israel's running out of water. The second part is the complaint, which is kind of the pattern that we've seen. But, but there's a whole new level of grumbling. Israel is demanding provision from God, and they're accusing God of evil, so much so that, that, that Moses thinks his life is on the line. This leads to the third part of this passage, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. The response. How does God respond to this sin of Israel, this grumbling of Israel. Well, look at verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, 
and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. How does God respond to this grumbling, this complaining, this sin? Once again, with grace, with patience. In fact, I have to say, before I studied the book of Exodus, I kind of had this picture of of this God in the book of Exodus. It was just purely this God of wrath. I think one of the things that has surprised me the most is we've gone through the first 17 chapters of Exodus and just studied it so in-depthly. It's actually just how gracious God is and patient God is, starting with Moses and his complaining chapter after chapter after chapter, and then the Israelites, they're grumbling and sinning in the wilderness. And what does he do every single time? He graciously provides for them. Like a loving father again with his son. There's this like father-son relationship that we see within the book of Exodus that, to be honest, has been somewhat surprising to me. I know that the Old Testament has God's grace throughout, but I think I'm surprised just how gracious God truly was to the Israelites in the wilderness. Four times Israel has grumbled, and all four times God responds graciously, patiently, with mercy, like a loving father providing for his son. But, even more than just this provision, which I think is what God is teaching the Israelites, right? He's provided water, he's provided food, and he's provided water again. Even more than just God teaching the Israelites that, that he'll provide for their physical needs. I think there's something that's going on in verses 5 and 6 that make these two verses very significant. In fact, <clears throat> I believe verses 5 and 6 really just display God's character in an incredible way. So let me just point out a few observations in these two verses. And I have about, I think I have seven observations. As I walk through these observations, I I hope that a picture gets painted of exactly what is going on and what is being taught here in these two verses in Exodus. These verses, I think, are way more significant than we give credit to as we read through this book. Let me show you what I mean. The first observation is this. God reminds Moses of who he is in verse 5. In fact, I think verse 5 is kind of a a mild rebuke to Moses. I I can't say this confidently, but when I read through this passage, it seems like Moses is now starting to be tempted to grumble as a leader of the Israelites as he turns to God and says, what shall I do with these people? (laughs) And God reminds Moses who who he is. Look at verse 5. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your uh, your hand the staff. Then God adds this statement, with which you struck the Nile. Moses, you remember the Nile. You remember the ten plagues. Moses, you remember who I am. I believe this was a gentle way of reminding Moses who Yahweh is. Remember the Nile. Which brings me to a second observation. God reminds Moses of a particular plague. There was 10, but there's a particular one that he points out here, the Nile. Think about it, right? Moses struck the Nile with his staff, and drinkable water turned into undrinkable blood. It was a judgment. 
was a judgment on Egypt. In fact, it was a judgment on the Nile, which was thought to be a god. The staff was used to judge Egypt. In this passage, God is, has Moses use that same staff to strike the rock. And the opposite happens. Drinkable water flows out. Which brings me to a third observation that I think is important. Moses was to go to the rock at Horeb. Now, Horeb is not that far from Sinai, but it's a very important place. In fact, if you read through this passage very quickly, you probably would just miss that little detail there. But Horeb is the first place God appeared to Moses. In fact, let me just read Exodus 3, verse 1. It says this, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he was led, and he led his flock into the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. This is where God first appeared to Moses in the bush that was on fire. Horeb is a significant place. It's where God first started revealing his name to Moses. Right? He said to Moses, I am who I am, which I've said a number of times. I really believe what God was saying there. I am who I am. He was telling Moses, I'm about to show you who I am. He says three things to Moses. I am who I am. And then he says this, say this to the people of Israel. When you go to Israel, say this, I am has sent me to you. Again, I think he was telling Moses to tell the Israelites, Israel, God's about to show you who he is. And then he says this, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, God's covenantal name, his name, Yahweh. He reveals his name to Moses, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Again, he was telling Israel, Moses, I'm about to show you what it means that I am Yahweh what my name means. Exodus is all about God revealing his name, revealing his character to to Egypt, to Israel, to the whole world. In fact, to us as we go through the book of Exodus. And in Exodus 3, it all started at Horeb. God told Moses his name is Yahweh, and he's about to show him and Israel what that means. Which leads to a, a fourth observation God specifically says that he will be on the rock at Horeb now again we read through these passages and I think sometimes we read through it very quickly Uh, if we read through it slowly verse 6 is actually worded very interestingly and I believe it's meant to stand out to us as we read through the book of Exodus Look at what verse 6 says. It says this. Again, this is the place where God said he's going to reveal his name. This is a a very special place, I believe. And verse 6 says this. Behold, I will stand before you. Now, that's an interesting phrase because normally the subordinate stands before the master. Who is seated. Normally, we stand before God in judgment. But look what verse 6 says. It says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And God specifically says, I will stand before you. And then he adds this, that, that he 
is on the rock at Horeb. Which brings me to a fifth observation. Moses was to strike the rock with the rod of judgment. Up to this point, we see in the book of Exodus that Moses uses his staff to bring judgment. Ten plagues in Egypt, right? The Red Sea crossing was his salvation for the Israelites. They walked on dry ground across the Red Sea, but what happened to their enemies? Judgment as the water crushed the Egyptian army. But God was reminding Moses at the end of verse 5, remember, take your staff, right? Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, right? The staff used for judgment to to strike Egypt, to, to strike the Nile in judgment and it turning to blood. Now, it's important that you see that, that God tells Moses to strike the rock. That word strike is actually an important word. It's used a lot in the Old Testament. It means to strike, to smite, to struck down, or to strike down, hit, injured, destroy, afflict. It's a word of judgment used throughout the Old Testament, but especially in Exodus, it's used over and over and over again to describe judgment. Let me just give you some examples. Exodus 3.20 says this, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. That's judgment. God is promising that there's judgment coming to Egypt. Exodus 7.17 says this, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in your hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Moses was to strike, same Hebrew word, strike the water, and it turned into blood as judgment. Exodus 7.20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up his staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. Exodus chapter 8, verse 16 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust, same word, strike the dust of the earth so that may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Again, the gnats were a judgment. Exodus nine fifteen. for by now I could have put my hand, put out my hand and struck you, same word, struck you and your people with pestilence. Exodus 9, verse 25, the hail struck down everything that was in the field and in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant. Again, that's judgment. Exodus 12, verse 12. Now listen to this. And I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. There's a clear connection in this Exodus 12, 12, the word strike and judgment. I will strike all the firstborn. I will execute judgment. Exodus 12, verse 29 says this, at midnight, the Lord 
struck down, same Hebrew word, struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Again, we see this word over and over and over again. In all these passages, it's the same Hebrew word translated strike or struck down. We'll now look at Exodus 17, verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Reminding Moses of the judgment in Egypt. Now look at verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. Moses was commanded to strike the rock, which symbolized judgment. Sixth observation. Judgment on the rock brought mercy in the form of water. In this passage, we see both judgment and mercy. Judgment on the rock, mercy in the water. Remember, again, this is a significant place. Horeb is where God started to reveal his name. It's where God told Moses, I'm about to show you who I am. It's where God said, go tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh. God is revealing his name, and I believe in verses 5 and 6 is a revelation of God's name. What it means that God is Yahweh, that God is both just and merciful. In fact, listen to Exodus 34, 6 through 7, which, as I have said throughout our time in Exodus, these are probably the two most important verses in the book of Exodus. In fact, I think these are probably the two most important verses in all of the Old Testament. This is the clearest revelation of what it means that God is Yahweh. The clearest revelation of God's character in the Old Testament. Listen to what it says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that's capital L-R-D, meaning Yahweh, Yahweh. It's the only time we see the construction of God's name said twice like this. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. In other words, God is merciful, but he will by no means clear the guilty. God is just. Visiting iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. At Horeb, right, God's justice, because God is just, was poured out on the rock. And God's mercy, because God is merciful, came out in the form of water. Which brings me to my seventh and final observation. It's simply this. The rock is Christ. The rock is Christ. The rock is a type of Christ. The rock is meant to point Israel forward to Jesus. The rock was Jesus teaching about the coming Messiah. In fact, verse 6 is just a beautiful picture of the gospel. Just look at verse 6. Let me read it. Behold, I will stand before you. Remember, that's a servant's position. Jesus came as a servant. 
Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. God's presence, and I believe the second person of the Trinity is the one talking here, was on the rock. And I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. That word strike is a word of judgment. It means to smite, to destroy. It's used over and over and over again in Exodus As God's judgment poured out. In fact, it's the same exact word used in Isaiah 53. This prophecy of the coming Messiah, the suffering servant, this prophecy of Jesus. Let me just read it. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten. It's the same Hebrew word literally means struck down. You can translate this struck down by God and afflicted. Why would God strike down and afflict his own son? Well, verse five tells us, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, We are healed. Again, Exodus 17, verse 6 is just a a beautiful picture of the gospel. The picture of Christ's death on the cross bringing healing to us. Bringing life-giving water to the Israelites. Let me just read verse 6 again. Just listen to this. And just listen how it just beautifully displays the character of God. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Let me just ask this question. What came out of Jesus when he was crucified? Water. John 19, 34 says this, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in John seven thirty seven. On the last day of the feast, let me just stop there. This feast was reminding the Israelites of their time in the wilderness. So they're reflecting on what happened in the wilderness here. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The rock at Horeb was a type of Christ. Pointing forward to the mercy that God is offering. Judgment was poured out on the rock and life flowing water came out. The rock was a type of Christ. It pointed to Jesus. This is why Paul says, This in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. And were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, which was the manna. Right? Verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. God's judgment poured out on Christ. God's mercy poured out on his people.
This brings me to my fourth and final point this morning, and that's the test. If you would, look at Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. Exodus 17, verse 7. It says this, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, there are two words here that become the name of this place because of this passage and what happened at Horeb. These two words are really key. Massa is the Hebrew word for testing. That's why it says, because they tested the Lord. Meribah is the Hebrew word for quarreling, strife, or argument because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. Both these words are, are found throughout this passage and really get to the heart of what's going on in this passage as a whole. Look at verse 2 real quick. It says this, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Moses asked two questions. Listen to these questions. Why do you quarrel with me? There's that word quarrel. Why do you test the Lord? There's that word test. These two words are really key to understanding this passage. You know, it's interesting as Moses asks, Why do you test the Lord? In chapters 15 and 16, we've seen that God was testing Israel, and in this testing in the trials was exposing Israel's heart, the ugliness within. But in chapter 17, Israel is testing God. And the test is found at the end of verse 17. Look at verse, or verse 7, sorry, chapter 17, verse 7. At the very end, it says this, Is the Lord among us or not? Right, that's the test. Another way of saying this is, does God love us or not? Right? They were testing God's love in this passage. And here's the test. If God loves us, he will give us water now. If he has abandoned us and therefore doesn't love us, is evil, right? we will continue to thirst. Israel was testing God's love. But they also were quarreling with God. Look at the beginning of verse 7. It says this, And he came, or and he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. Right now, the word quarreling, again, we've talked about this earlier, means uh, dispute, quarrel, brawl, strife, but it also has this legal sense to it. It, it can mean lawsuit, legal procedure, legal case, legal dispute, or court case. In other words, Israel wasn't just testing God in this passage. They were actually organizing some kind of lawsuit against him. There's all types of allusions to a trial here. They're putting God on trial. Let me just show you what I mean. These allusions to a trial. Right? Twice in this passage it says that Israel was testing God. Again, quarreling and testing are, are legal terms in Hebrew. In verses 2 and 3, Israel lists their grievances. It's like they're building a case against God. In verse 4, they're ready to stone Moses. And that's important because in the Old Testament, stoning was the covenantal way of carrying out the death penalty. It was the legal way of doing it. And it was tied to the community because everyone had a hand in it. It was, it was the way of carrying out the death penalty. There's this legal sense to it. It was capital punishment. 
In verse 5, God tells Moses to take with him some of the elders of Israel. These elders, in other words, would be witnesses of what was about to happen. They're acting like a jury. In ancient times, the assembling of elders would pass judgment on disputes of legal matters. They're the ones to judge on legal matters. In verse 6, God stood before Moses as if he was on trial. Verse 6 again, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And in verse 7, he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Again, both of these Hebrew words are often used as legal terms. Israel was putting God on trial, in other words, in this passage. And here's the ironic thing. Israel was the one who was guilty. In chapters 15 through 17, they're the ones grumbling. They're the ones complaining. They're the ones disobeying. They are the ones sinning. They are the ones that deserved death because the wages of sin is death. Yet, God is the one who is on trial in this passage. He is the one receiving the punishment. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. Listen, this is the gospel. Jesus, who was fully God. Jesus, who was completely sinless and innocent. He was put on trial by sinful men. Although innocent, he was punished, he was crucified. He paid the price we owed. He paid our wages. The wages of sin is death. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, which is God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died so that we could live. You know, that's love. The Israelites were questioning God's love. They didn't question his power. They didn't question his wisdom. They questioned his love for them. And God displayed in front of them the greatest act of love. That his son would come, live a perfect life, live with us as a servant, die on the cross for our sins. That's love. That's the gospel. John 3, 16 again says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So there's four parts of this passage, four points in this sermon, the crisis, the complaint, the response, and the test. Let me end just by saying this. Putting God to the the test is a sin, right? You know this. In fact, Deuteronomy 6.16 just makes this clear, and this is Moses at the end of the time in the wilderness reflecting on what Israel learned in the wilderness as they're about to go into the promised land, and he tells the people of God, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa, which is referring to Exodus chapter 17. 
In other words, he's saying, don't do that <laughs> again. You know why we're not test God? You know why testing God is a sin, in fact, a really bad sin? There's two reasons why. The first one's obvious, right? And it's obvious in this passage. It should be, right? It's not our place to judge God. He is in authority, right? He is God. He is creator. We are creation. He judges us, not the other way around. It's not our place to put God on trial. Yet it's exactly what we did when he came on earth. (laughs) We put him on trial falsely accused him and hang him on a cross. So the first reason, it's not our place to judge God, but the second reason, and this is where I want to leave you this morning, the second reason why it's such a great sin to test God, to say, well, if I get this, God, you, you prove to me that you love me. If I don't, then you don't love me. The second reason why it's such a great sin to test God is that he has already proven his love. What else could he give? In fact, saying, if you don't give me this, you don't love me, it's just spitting on the face of what he did on the cross with his son. Listen to Romans 8, 31 and 32. These are probably my two favorite verses in all of scripture. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, God, I know those two verses are true. That you have nothing else to prove that that we are sinners, that we deserve death, that we've rebelled against you in horrific ways, that we've downplayed our sins and tried to act like they're not that bad. We've tried to justify our actions, Lord. And on top of all that, Lord, we say your son's not good enough when we test you within our hearts saying, if you don't give us this, you don't truly love us, Lord. Yet just like in the wilderness, your mercy and grace just pours out over and over and over against our horrible sins. God, I know this is a challenge for me. I've been blessed with so much and I forget the blessings. I focus on my trials. I focus on what I don't have. And even though I don't verbalize it, Lord, I know my heart often tests you. God, I pray that we just see the love that you poured out by sending your son to die on the cross for our sins, Lord. And that no matter what we go through in life, Lord, we reflect on that and say, God is good. And he is love. And that he loved me. And that he will be with me through everything. God, I pray that that is my heart. I pray that that's our church's heart, Lord. Be with us. In your son's name, amen.